0: Welcome to Nordic by Nature, a podcast on ecology today, inspired by the Norwegian philosopher, Anna Ness, who coined the term deep ecology. In this episode, on ethics, R.J. Rastogi, at the Foundation for the Contemplation of Nature in Uttarakhand, India, invites Dr. John Haustoffer from Western Colorado University in Gunnarsson, the States, to speak about what constitutes ethics today. Both R.J. and Dr. John, as his students call him, are part of a growing movement that calls for a new kind of ethics that views all places as part of our home, all generations and beings as part of our scope of responsibility, and all actions as potential expressions of human care for the world.
1: Yeah, hi, my name is Ajay Rastogi and I'm joining in from the Uttarakhand state of Central Himalaya. It's a very beautiful afternoon. We have the majestic mountain views in the front and uh, happy to have this conversation.
2: My name is John Hausdorfer. I'm the Dean of the School of Environment and Sustainability at Western Colorado University. And I'm the founder of the Mountain Resilience Coalition, co founder and co founder of the Resilience Studies Coalition, and a humble and honored friend of Ajay Rastogi's through our sister city partnership between Gunnison, Colorado, and Machkali, India. For me, ethics is different from morals. Morals are notions of right and wrong that we receive from society, from elders, from family, from law, from religion, from popular culture, literature, philosophy, external claims about right and wrong. And ethics is our capacity to question, analyze, evaluate those moral claims as to whether or not we want to live our lives based on them or unsettle them and create new visions of how to live. In an outer sense, ethics is about how do we know what's good for the world beyond what's good for me? How do we measure right and wrong beyond what's right for me? How do we understand what brings good to any being system or community with its own value, whether it's human or more than human? And how do we extend our own value out into the world? But it's also about internal resilience. What is the good life and To me, these questions of the climate crisis, questions of social justice movements, questions of deep ecology, re-enliven very ancient questions. What does it mean to live a good life when seen from the point of view of social and ecological systems that sustain us, from which we evolved, of which we are a part? It's really about the good life and and re-asking old questions like, What is the world who are we how are we to live with frameworks that come from a global consciousness about anything from our economy to the climate crisis and so again ethics is simple it's our ability to analyze moral claims but it's become really complex now that those moral claims involve things about how driving to the corner store to get a gallon of milk might affect farmers on the other side of the world. These old questions are much more complicated now, as complicated as they were before.
1: The issues are far more complex, as Dr. John Hausdorfer has mentioned. And this whole thing of that we carried on for several decades about north-south or temperate and tropics. It seems that this north-south divide is no more a clear-cut north-south divide because there is a south in the north and there is a north in the south. Every community seems like to be fractured and fractured so much that we have a highly multicultural societies that are evolving, multi-class societies that are evolving, and to address this concerns of social equity, above all, access access to basic amenities. On the one hand, we are seeing that the world is being destroyed, the biological diversity is being destroyed, the oceans are being destroyed. And on the other hand, we feel that there is a crisis of development because there is not enough water for the people, there is not enough uh, food for the communities. So this looks like a highly complex scenario where it cannot be just dealt with by technological solutions we need certain kind of a transformation maybe a radical change in the way we look around i think within societies the notions of development are therefore needs to be challenged if so few people with their affluence can destroy 90% of the resources of the world, or consume 90% of the resources of the world, how do we lend resilience to the entire society so that there is more equity and there is more ecological security? It is not just about outer resilience, but there is, those of us who are privileged to have the resources, it's also about our inner resilience to be able to share with others. If we reduce the climate crisis
2: to carbon emissions, we reduce climate actions to technological strategies for shrinking carbon emissions, we lose out an opportunity for growth in ourselves. And what I mean by that is that when you look at the emergence of ecological science in the 20th century, or you look back thousands, ten thousands of years, of traditional ecological knowledge, both come with an evolution of perceiving the complexity of living systems and the human place in them, and the expansion of our capacity to care for that complexity. And I worry that when we reduce ecological problems, social ecological problems, to either natural resource quantity or tons of carbon in the atmosphere, we lose out on the opportunity for inner growth, for expanding our capacity to perceive of and care for complexity in a new way. It's really about the growth of the human spirit that I'm worried about. As much as I'm worried about deforestation and loss of snowpack, I'm worried about the commodification of the human capacity to care through just seeing the value of the natural world as quantifiable resources, reducing our role in the world to doing less bad rather than our role in the world as loving, perceptive beings. And I think that the moment we're in is a great opportunity to work across cultures to grow that capacity to care. And if we just frame it around carbon emission reduction by 2050, we've lost the deep ecology moment that we're in. RNA reminded us to make a distinction between bigness and greatness. And I would also ask us to make the distinction between smallness and greatness. Like it's a, it's nice to humble ourselves and to, you know, think of the language here, shrink our carbon footprint, reduce, reuse, recycle, leave, no trace. But at least speaking for, Middle-class Americans. We're not inspired by making ourselves smaller. We want that greatness that Ness was talking about, but greatness doesn't need to mean bigness in terms of our global impact. Greatness can be around a great capacity to care for each other, a great understanding of ecological complexity, a great and compassionate global community, and and the alternative to big is not just shrinking ourselves. Um, Aj was sharing with my students the story of Lakshmi, who represents eight kinds of wealth, Yeah, Ajay. Mm
1: -hmm.
2: So we think about richness in so many ways. You know, there's all these kinds of richness we're looking at together, uh, social capital, human capital, cultural capital, intellectual capital, natural capital. One of the things we were talking about yesterday, Ajay and I, looking out at the Himalayas, was how some of these questions that are emerging from the climate crisis and emerging from global inequity and poverty are old questions. And what we were asking the students is that, you know, are they comforted by the fact that these are old questions or are they disheartened by the fact that these are old questions? There's a concern that lack of inner resilience, that hole inside of us, driving a kind of external greed that will destabilize us inside, but also create injustice in the world on the outside. That relationship between inner and outer resilience is is what Ajay and I have been talking about with our students as at the core of ethics. How does an outer resilience movement, like for example, sustainable agriculture or water conservation or renewable energy, Stem from and how is this sustained by a kind of inner resilience, and and how does our inner being find fulfillment and satisfaction from those outer resilience efforts? You know, those two aren't merged. You know, I know plenty of American organic farmers or environmental nonprofit workers who got burned out. Environmental nonprofits have a high turnover rate, and so they may be doing outer resilience work, but they're collapsing for a lack of inner resilience. We're trying to find that sweet spot as the core of ethics in the Anthropocene. So resilience, you know, I hesitate to offer a simple definition um, because resilience emerges from so many cultures and time periods, but in the Western scientific discourse, You know, it really starts with, um, in my view, Aldo Leopold, who the American conservationist who did not even use the word resilience. But when he talked about the health of land, he talked about the capacity for self-renewal. And that gets at the core of resilience. You know, resilience is the ability to adapt to shock or disturbance. Before ecology, we've seen that word used in psychology, thinking about how people respond to trauma. Um, whether they grow from that healing or collapse from it. But in ecology, it really emerged from Buzz Holling in 1973. And he really shook up ecology and the sciences in talking about the capacity to persist because for him, it was no longer about nature's equilibrium. It's no longer about how an ecosystem reaches a sort of climax community status and then has natural balance. For him... There's this adaptive cycle, right, that requires disturbance. And so suddenly resilience is about the capacity for a system to absorb and adapt to disturbance, to thrive on the other side of that disturbance. So thinking about a low-intensity forest fire, uh, clearing out excess of dead and living trees to allow for the understory and the forest to thrive and the habitat to thrive. And by the 21st century, we have, you know, Brian Walker and David Salt taking Holling's notion of the importance of disturbance. And they're actually now using that phrasing in the definition. They're saying resilience is the capacity of a system to absorb disturbance. But the real turning point has been in the last decade. I think there's been a revolution in how we think about resilience. An essay by Carl Falk in 2010 He talked about the capacity to create a fundamentally new system. Now Carl Folk is talking about transformational change is the definition of resilience. So resilience is now the capacity to create a fundamentally new system, literally transforming our political systems around capping carbon or a carbon tax or disrupting campaign finance so that oil and gas companies no longer have so much power it's about building awareness into our citizenry. And really what he says, is a quote from him, he says, transformational change often involves shifts in perception and meaning, social network configurations, patterns of, inf- of interactions among actors, including leadership and political and power relationships, right? So suddenly resilience is about activists, democratic, co-creation of economic, social, political, environmental justice. I was lucky enough to talk with Vandana Shiva in 2018 about this, and I just asked her, point blank, what's your definition of resilience? And she said, dealing with illusions is the resilience of our time. Do you think about that arc, you know, from... Leopold's capacity for self-renewal, to Buzz Holling bringing like disturbance into how we understand ecological systems, to folk talking for transformational change, to just Shiva saying, resilience is just whether or not we can deal with illusions. And I think those illusions are outer and inner. The illusions can be the way in which companies have spent billions of dollars to get people to doubt scientists. But illusions can also be internal, the illusion of the separate individualistic self being fulfilled by consumption. That illusion is also driving resilience, the illusion that we're not part of one global community together, we're in competition with each other. How do we become renewed? When we work together to renew the world, that's inner and outer resilience. The second layer, though, is going back to Arne Ness, when he talks about self realization, right, he's using realize in a double way. You know, he's first, we're first intellectually realizing, like, Eureka, myself is bigger than just my mind, myself extends out into the river that he protested through chaining himself to a dam, right? That was part of his larger self. He realized that intellectually from saying, okay, ecology interconnects everything physically. Why wouldn't it interconnect the self with the world? But I think realization for him is also about you make something real. So you realize your full potential of yourself through intellectually realizing it is the world. But also, through fighting for the realization of a free-flowing river, you're realizing your own self-actualization, but also the liberation of your larger self. Self Self-realization, again, there's an inner and outer resilience coming together. Arnie Ness chaining himself to a dam, right, as a way of realizing his self-actualizing potential. I mean, just last week in the United States, Uh, the actors Ted Danson and Jane Fonda he's 71, she's 81 they were handcuffed and arrested for protesting climate change sitcom primetime actor Ted Danson said being handcuffed focused me now think of that it's an outer action to push fellow citizens to take on climate change but what did he say there it focused me So how is he going to be energized from that focus? It's almost like Thoreau saying the jail cell in a slave society is the only place for a free man, right? It focused him in civil disobedience. There's that inner resilience.
1: So in 2016, uh, we developed a collaboration with the Western Colorado University and a graduate student that time, Brendan McNamara, he visited us and we, in collaboration, designed a course, which is now called Mountain Resiliency. It's a three-credit course and students have been coming for the course together with the Dean, Dr. John Hausdorfer. And the course is being offered in Machkali. It's a month-long course. We also have customized courses for different universities, which could be shorter duration, anywhere between a week, 10 days, to two to three weeks. And the mountain resiliency module is uh, getting quite an attention uh, in terms of how much transformation it can bring about in the students. This is a course which started with this thinking of place-based learning and place-based learning based on those three pillars of dignity of physical work, interdependence, and interconnectedness. But we are encouraging students to think and to interact with people in the community who understand more about those themes. So for example, one theme in the Mountain Resilience course place-based learning is local cooperatives, which is about the five forms of capital. How do the students understand that it's not just the economic or the financial capital, which is important, but an enterprise should build ecological capital and um, social capital, natural capital, and human capital. So for that, we go to a local cooperative who has been working here with 2,000 women as members, and we learn from them. How have been your experience of building this five forms of capital in the institution? Similarly, other theme is lifestyle thinking. Lifestyle thinking is about the purpose that you mentioned. Okay, so what is the purpose? Where? How about happiness? What are the sources of happiness? Is it just about acquiring and consumption, or is it about social connectedness? Is it about the meaning of how we relate to each other? Is it about trusted relationships? About the interconnectedness, then we think about in how many forms do we get what we need from the landscape? And how do we maintain reciprocity and equilibrium with the resources that we get from nature? So it's also about traditional ecological knowledge about agriculture, about forestry use, about livestock, etc. Now, water is another very big issue in the mountain areas. And water also, as you know, connects right from the watershed down to the spring and to the kitchens of the people. So, how do we take care of the water? What are the traditional norms of taking care of the water? Why are the forests in the catchment of water springs sacred? How does it relate to our customs in the society? And do those customs help us in more rejuvenating water use for everyone? So, that's how the place based learning module has been evolving. One very important aspect of the course is a walking journey. We have just finished in this course eight days walking journey like last time. We pass through villages, we talk to the people, we have discussions, we have circle time. Students get to go across different kinds of village, different kinds of agriculture around the villages, different utilization of the forest, and then they can talk to the communities. It's also intergenerational learning because when we talk to the youth, you get a different response. When we talk to the elder, you might get a different response. How do you reconcile the aspirations of the youth? So I think students are able to grasp the social complexity, the ecological complexity and the cultural complexity. It's not just about carbon. It's a whole lot of a complex scenario that we are facing in the society. And to be able to comprehend it, to be able to contemplate what would be the possible scenarios of intervention. That is a little bit about the outer resilience. Now, if you turn it other way around, what is my responsibility? How do I accept my privileges? What do I do as a responsible citizen in this scenario? I think that is where the inner resilience also plays a big part. The social events, like for example, we are at the moment celebrating Diwali. The students are a part of those festivities in the village. What is the message that the festival of Diwali gives? What is wealth? What is the concept of wealth? Because in Diwali, the general notion is that we offer prayers to the goddess of wealth. And the wealth is not just about money. So it is about liberation. It's about uh, food security. The wealth is also courage to be able to behave responsibly. We need courage, and courage is a kind of wealth. Wealth is also about being able to follow the path of resilience and also how we can destroy the suffering. So we need to be giving up certain things and taking up certain other things to be able to make these adjustments in life. It's a beautiful course that students are able to experience in a different culture.
2: One of the things we've done out of a concern that American students don't simply swoop into a community where their guests think they can solve problems and swoop out without a proper needs assessment, without humbly co-creating solutions with community leaders, is that beyond the course, which lasts a month, we've created a sister city partnership between Gunnison City Council in Colorado and Machkali. Leaders here, so that there is a continuity between each year's course, and one of the glue between each year's undergrad course is a graduate student living in Machakali, keeping a mountain conversation alive when the course is not happening, so that students feel like if they contribute something in Machakali, it's within the intellectual capital of this community and can continue beyond their presence here, knowing that they're part of a larger self of students who will come long after they've left. Brandon McNamara, who designed this with Ajay, he did it as his master's project. And when I created the master in environmental management program at Western, I did away with the thesis and said, the world needs PhD students defending theses to expand knowledge, but why do we have master's degrees? Why not to extend the reach of visionary but overextended organizations by requiring a year-long project for that organization? Five years later, we're sending 25,000 hours of these projects around the world to extend that reach for organizations. And we'll have 1,000 of those by 2035, but they're playful. Students don't just get bogged down in... Complaining about who the u s. President is and what the global impact of that arrogance is, they are playfully creating solutions. We call it the MB program instead of not in my backyard in my backyard. What do you want to create? Uh, what do you want to grow? What kind of wealth <laughs> do you want to promote? Scale it up.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, actually, through the United Nations Mountain Partnership, they're they're connecting me with um, what they see as similar project driven programs around the world. Um, the Resilient Studies Consortium I've started is, is looking to find those partners. We found a beautiful one at University in Germany um, that we have a nice partnership with. First, the job is to create an excellent model. You know, we haven't perfected what we're doing yet. We never will. I'd like to expand on in and out of resilience. Ajay was talking about water, and one of the aspects that we share between sister city communities is is water. We both are on the edge of major mountain ranges. We both rely on snowpack uh, from spiritual fulfillment to uh, economic need to forest health to eco tourist potential to family traditions. And in Colorado, there's a community, San Luis, Colorado. Someone you should interview someday, Devon Pena, writes brilliantly about San Luis, Colorado. And what happened there was Calabra Peak. It's a 14,000 foot, oh, uh, four or five thousand meter peak. The snowpack of that mountain is necessary for a 200 year old food system in the town of San Luis. It's a Hispanos traditional farming community that uses acequia ditches bringing gravity-fed water to the fields, that water is managed democratically. It's a water democracy. And that water actually expands the riparian ecosystem. So the way in which that community produces their livelihood and sense of cultural self, the food of their ancestors in their stomach, also renews the ecosystem. How exciting is that? When we have examples in the modern era of social livelihood resulting in more biodiversity rather than less. And that's that's not just a movement making itself smaller, that's finding a new great story of human communities as co-creators of social ecological renewal. That's been disrupted. Uh, logging companies have tried to clear cut on the mountain, which speeds up snow melt, threatening the growing season. The movements there have been really resilient, though. We've seen examples of conservative, in some cases, farmers linking arms and chaining themselves to a gate with earth-first tree sitters. <laughs> they care about those trees for different reasons, but there's something resilient in the intersection between them. And so for me, outer resilience really is really told by that story, that to have the resilience of that forest ecosystem protected from a clear cut... We need the social resilience of a community's water democracy, which needs the cultural resilience of that community's diet and traditional food practices. It's deep food, which needs the emotional resilience of its youth. Many of the youth of that community are leaving for economic opportunity in Colorado Springs and Denver. And I think there's a lack of that deep connection to the intrinsic value of being of that place among the youth, that's going to be the tipping point for the rest of that community's resilience collapsing. If we don't have a next generation that feels spiritually fulfilled in doing the hard work of managing that community's food system, suddenly the expanded riparian system, as well as the food system, as well as people who protect that forest, as well as people who wanna protect the amount of snow on that mountain will collapse. And I'm finding that here as well on our our trek to the Himalayas. Interview after interview with community elder, they talked about the loss of youth to economic dreams in Delhi. Now, even the ancient stone walls are starting to crumble because the youth are leaving. How to build inner resilience in the youth spiritually And I don't mean religion, I mean fulfilled as beings in a place. So that then cultural, social, ecological resilience follows.
1: It's a very big question as to how do we connect our youth to the beauty of the place and wisdom of the past. It's not an easy answer. It's also rooted in the fact how and what is projected as respectable in the society. And that I think has changed. It was, I think uh, possible if the environmental degradation was not there to the extent that we have seen, it's also to do with the policies of the British Commonwealth. Now, the big change that has come about is in the last 25 years what we are seeing is that the educated youth would venture out from the communities and they would find certain employment but the rest of the family would be held and therefore the lands would be fertile the traditions would continue the festivals will Uh, happen, the deity, the resident deities of the landscapes would be offered prayers regularly. Now, if the whole families migrate out, then it is an even bigger question, how do we keep those lands productive? Food systems used to be kind of a central pivot for a society. Most of the festivities, the ceremonies, and the connectedness with the landscapes was around food systems. So just the economic answers may not be able to fulfill the needs. Although it may seem that economics may be at the root of beginning, trying to bring a change, it appears that connecting to the roots, the identities of the place, the ancestral locations that we have, I think those are the kinds of bigger connects that will... Bring us in with a better comprehension of wholeness that I would feel, not, not just by being myself alone, but in a community, and a community which is not just about neighbors, but it's also about the trees and the forest and the water and the air and the mountains.
2: We ended our trek from Machkali and Kosani. And visited with Ajay's friend D. Raj, who runs B2R, which is a company dedicated to keeping the youth in the mountains, in the foothills of the Himalaya, through having them serve banks and other industries through uh, mass uh, data analysis and, and double checking PDFs and things like that. And they take an incredible amount of pride, as D. Raj put it, in being participants in a global conversation in their little mountain town. But even Diraj will say, you know, as proud as he is of that, he really wants to then have that transition into a more holistic connection with their place. He's done it for 10 years. He's employed 300 mountain peoples, youth mainly. But for him, it's half the battle to keep them in the town. Then the question is, What is the value of that life in that town? And how do you make that mountain life in itself whole rather than making it feel like a mini deli? And I think that's where Ajay and the Foundation for the Contemplation of Nature really comes in to connect people to the sacred value of, of the land they walk on through the dignity of work. Yes, one should take great pride in being educated technically in this new economy and finding a voice in that economy by walking from the farm to D. Raj's computer station. But how can one have the same level of dignity, if not more, from returning home and milking the cow or splitting wood, repairing that ancient stone wall, repairing that ancient stone temple? I think the dignity of work and the dignity of mountain work must merge with bringing opportunities to mountain communities. And there's something in that bridge that's necessary. When we talk about renewal, we're talking about anything from an ecosystem's capacity to renew itself, to certain cultural practices renewing themselves, to human being having that spiritual renewal in the face of a collapse of a way of life. And you're thinking about, you know, beyond the Himalayas where, by the way, the infrastructure for that kind of connection with renewing cultural and social and ecological systems that are traditional, that infrastructure is still there. Whereas in the United States, it's being rebuilt in a lot of cases. We're seeing a lot of growth in farmers markets. We're seeing a lot of, backyard gardens. There's a really inspirational place in Chicago called Eden Place where on the south side where the predominantly African-American community that had horribly lead contaminated soil has renewed that land by cleaning up the soil, turning into community gardens, and then renewing that confidence in being a land-based people after their ancestors left the south because of what happened on the land so it's not just a renewal of lead-contaminated soil. It's also a renewal of the spirit of a people who are traumatized by land itself. And so I think we're starting to see renewal come together in all of these ways. Renewal from cultural trauma, renewal from ecological collapse. Vandana Shiva talks about the living energies that are still embedded in the infrastructures of rural India, while fossil fuel driven infrastructures are are, are coming in rapidly um, in food systems with pesticides and tractors and then highway systems and automobiles and industry. She's saying, you know, these, these living energies are still here. The energy of the cow, the energy of compost, the energy of shared networks of labor, the energy of the sun, the rain. Those living energies are very much still in place, you know, and, and her concern is if we shift from fully into that fossil fuel infrastructure, a lot of carbon will be released into the atmosphere, right? But you'll also have that loss of renewal. People being displaced from their farms has led to a quarter million farmer suicides in this country in the last 20 years. Talk about the opposite of renewal. I think a lot of this is about renewal, inner and outer resilience. And Brandon McDamara, our colleague who developed this course with Ajay on inner and outer resilience, he's adding this other form of capital that he's calling spiritual capital. And I think for me, that's not about making sure a certain religion is still followed. It's To me, it's being a spiritual being is simply being more than a body that consumes bodies in a global economy. Inner resilience is a thing in itself that's not taught enough we have enough doom and gloom about, Oh, the loss of the Ganges or the loss of the Ohm glacier. And that kind of fear of loss is just not a sustainable fuel. In that instead we have to start talking about what are we going to gain? And if we see them in a reciprocal relational way, inner and outer resilience, then maybe they keep each other alive rather than just if we make people feel scared and guilty enough, maybe they'll do some mindfulness exercises so they keep fighting against climate change and don't burn out. They can go on a mindfulness cruise. Right, Ajay? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Actually, on the trek, my 8-year-old and 11-year-old daughters joined us. And, you know, they understand the changes happening around them. They're not that much younger than Greta Thunberg, and they have some clarity and some climate anxiety. And I just asked them on the trek, I said, how's it fun? How's it more fun to fight climate change? And one daughter said, well, if we have a pretty yard with fun plants that attract butterflies, we're not using gas to mow the lawn and the yard's more fun. And I think my daughter was onto something there. You know, there, there there's beauty, there's fun, there's creativity. They're talking about the core of our evolutionary species being. What are we if not adaptive, creative beings, right? Karl Marx said we're producers, which means we can imagine something in our mind and make it real in the world. That's when we're most human. Why not view these climate solutions as playful, carnivalesque, celebratory expressions of our evolutionary species being as adaptive and creative members of this blue ball flying through space. The American middle class of the last three generations represents the first time in which private life has been more pleasurable than public life. And that's very dangerous.
0: you for listening to this episode of Nordic by Nature on ethics. You can find more information on our guests and the transcript of this podcast on imaginarylife.net slash podcast. Please help us by sharing a link to this episode with the hashtag traces of north and follow us on Instagram at Nordic by Nature podcast. We are also fundraising for a new series on Pantheon.com slash NordicByNature. Many thanks to Ajay Rastogi at the Foundation for the Contemplation of Nature in India. If you would like more information on courses in resilient thinking for both students and professionals, please write directly to Ajay via foundnature.org. You can also follow the Foundation for the Contemplation of Nature on Facebook and at Contemplation of Nature on Instagram. Thanks also to Dr. John Hausdorfer. Dr. John has written and co-edited books at the intersection of environmental ethics and social justice, including Caitlin's Lament, Wildness, and his upcoming book, What Kind of Ancestor Do You Want to Be? He is also the founding dean of the School of Environment and Sustainability at Western Colorado University. He co-founded the Cold Harbor Institute with Butch Clark, on 350 acres of land east of Gunnison, Colorado, to exemplify sustainable mountain living in the Rockies. He also co-founded the Resilience Studies Consortium to unite environmental programs from liberal arts colleges across the world so they can provide what he calls multi-place, place-based education in hands-on, interdisciplinary learning laboratories. You can find more information on Gunnison's Sister City International Partnership with the Himalayan community of Majkali on sistercities.org. The music and sound has been designed by Diego Losa. You can find him on diegolosa.blogspot.com. We'd love to hear your thoughts on our podcast, so please don't hesitate to email me, Tanya, on nordicbynature at gmail.com.